And let's flip our Bibles back to our passage in Esther. And it's good to be back. I appreciate uh, Ryan shaking off the dust and filling in last week. He did such a fine job. If you didn't, if you weren't here, which there were several of us that weren't here, if you weren't here, <clears throat> I would suggest you find that in uh, last week's sermon and uh, listen to that. Ryan, he just did such a fine job. And through a whole series of different circumstances, he hasn't had the opportunity to do this in quite some time. So for him to... Uh, be out so long and then get up and be able to do that. I was very pleased and I was, I was proud of him. That's how, that's how I get. I was just proud of him. So, uh, and it's good to be back. We were in uh, North Carolina last week and our little uh, newest granddaughter, Jenny, was baptized. And so we got to be in church, uh, which is an Anglican church plant in, uh, right outside of Winston-Salem. So that was fun. So it's good to be back. It's good to be back in our home. In our, in our little church with our people. So um, I am excited today. And we're uh, in our next to last week of going through Esther. And obviously we're covering quite a swath of scripture today. Uh, I will quote very little of it. Um, but, but I think it has a good bit in store for us. Let's pray. Almighty God, look mercifully upon your people that by your great goodness... They may be governed and preserved evermore through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. So, uh, this, is a, so this is that collect for the day. This is the, 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 uh, the every week we have a different collect, a, a prayer that we're going to be collected together to pray together. And then it repeats as, as you're doing morning prayer. We're using that every day as we're going throughout the week. Uh, this prayer, I think, is very fitting for this passage and our lesson today. Um, and, and most frequently, that is the way that works. But uh, that by your great goodness, they may be governed and preserved evermore. That God is in the business of saving a people to himself. And this is what we're going to look at today. So we're, we're winding down this book of Esther. Next week will be our last week in the book. And... Uh, then we will begin our Lenten series. Uh, so we have next Sunday, and then it's the next Wednesday that we will have Ash Wednesday. Lent begins, and then we'll be in our Lenten series up until Easter. Uh, today, this passage uh, that we're looking at, or this whatever chapter and a half that Bert read so well uh, with all those names, and I too was glad that I only had the gospel reading, which I'm very familiar with, and I still didn't read it as well as he read all those weird names. But in this passage, this is a continuation of where we were uh, two weeks ago when we were last in Esther in chapter 7, and it's the story of the great reversal. And that's, the story is continuing, and the, the theme is the same theme that continues into this 8 through 9. It's about the great reversal. This hidden providence of God in this book, it should give you hope in the midst of difficult circumstances those times when you need a great reversal. It has been giving that kind of hope and uh, expectation and encouragement to people for generation after generation after generation since it has been written. The 
the story of God's people on the verge of annihilation, then being snatched from the enemy's hands because of the story of a, a great God rescuing his people is a familiar story. It's a familiar story to the Jews because every year during Passover they remember how God saved the people and brought them out of Egypt by splitting the sea so that they could cross on dry land and then covering up the enemy and destroying those who sought to destroy his people, the Jews. So this theme or plot is a familiar one. But this is what, again, we see here. And in this book, this God saving his people is, it has been such an encouragement that uh, people have used this uh, over and over and over again when they're going through different kinds of trials and tribulations. C.H. Spurgeon said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you can lay your head. So this when we talk about the sovereignty of God and the fact that like a leaf doesn't fall from the tree without God's sovereign uh, control, when we get that down to the nth degree, it becomes like when you start thinking, it just boggles your mind. And it's more than I can imagine. However, when we do have a greater appreciation of not the randomness of, of our world in which we live, but the fact that it is under God's control, I agree wholeheartedly with C.H. Spurgeon. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. So we rest in that. So I'm hoping that this book has given you reassurance and hope about uh, your trials and God's sovereignty in the midst of the times where you've suffered persecution or suffered loss or suffered uh, trials of any sort. This is what it's been doing for that persecuted Jewish people over and over again. The Jews in Europe cherished the book of Esther under the Nazi regime. In fact, this book was so powerful that um, these people, as they're, you know, they're standing against Hitler or trying to survive, where Hitler was their Haman. Haman wanted to destroy the Jews. Hitler wanted to destroy the Jews. This is a parallel story. And so these people would hang on to the book of Esther. But so powerful this book and this story of this book that if you were caught in one of the concentration camps with a piece of the book of Esther, you would be immediately put to death. However many people in the concentration camp could recite that book or, or make copies of that book from memory. Now that's clinging to the word of God for hope. The victory belongs to the Lord. Haman had made his choice to follow after the idols of his heart, and then God used him and his choices to accomplish his purposes, God's purposes, of saving his people. Our God continues to work behind the scene to give us victory over our enemy of sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil, through the cross of Christ. The first thing we're going to see in this theme of reversal, or the great reversal, we're going to see the reversal of wealth. So, if you will, let's start with verse 1 in chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Esther, Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told 
what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So if you'll remember back when Haman left that second, uh, well, that was the first, that left the first banquet of the queen, he let, he, as he came out, uh, he saw Mordecai, who, would, who, who had refused to bow down to him, but at this point he's sitting, he won't even stand to honor the presence of Haman. And Haman gets all kinds of aggravated about that, and he ran home, he covered his head, he went home and he pouted, and it was to his wife and to his friends, and in that pouting, he recounted all of his glories, all of his possessions, all of his accomplishments. It's at this point that we got to recognize that Haman, in his position, being the second to the king, to have his estate be left empty, this would have been something sizable. There would have been like property, houses, or at least a house. There would have been money. There would have been servants and probably even family members that belonged under him who are going to be now given to Mordecai, his enemy, his arch enemy. Haman is being hung on the gallows and all of his stuff, which he loves so much, is given to Mordecai. And, and, whether, and given to Esther, who puts Mordecai in charge of it, but ultimately it gets into Mordecai's uh, control and in, the, in his hand. Uh, perhaps Ahasuerus was acting out of a sense of justice, where he giving this to, uh, giving this stuff, all these possessions, to Esther, that's giving to the victim that which belonged to the victimizer. So we have seen this reversal of wealth, that which meant so much to Haman, and then the next thing we see is the reversal of the curse. And if you let's go to verse 3, and we just have a few words, and then we're going to stop. So then Esther spoke again to the king. And we're going to stop right there for a moment. In, in the flow of the story as you're reading it, since this is like verse 3 and not, you know, verse 1 of a different chapter or what have you, uh, it's easy to, uh, it, the way it flows, it appears that she is addressing the king at the same time that, you know, Haman is hung, then the property is given away. All this is happening like at the same time, except that's really just not the case. There's actually a difference of about two months between verse 2 and verse 3. In chapter 3, so that goes for us, that takes us way back into the fall when we were there, when Haman's edict was written, that was in the first month of the year. So to get our time frames, if you'll remember, he, the, the edict was written, and then Mordecai made his plea to Esther. Esther you know, heard, she had to you know, remember who she was, and then she had this commitment to do, but she took three days and asked the Jews to be in prayer or fasting, doesn't say prayer, but we're assuming that was prayer and fasting, uh, for three days. And then she uh, approached the king and had the first banquet. And then it was the next day that she had the second banquet. And now we're pretty well up to um, verse 2-ish. So from chapter 3 to 8-2 to 
is all in that same very short time period. And then when we get to this verse 3, um, we'll see that the time frame is different at chapter 8, verse 3. Um, the decree, it will see, in, as, as Bert already read, that the decree is written on the 23rd of Sivan, the third month of the year. So at least two months have passed between verse 2 and verse 3. And then by the time we get to the end of that reading, which was very long, and it's not a surprise that we're advancing in time, but that's in the 12th month of the year. So those are the time frames that we're, we're uh, covering. Um, as she approaches, in, in, uh, in continuing in 3, it says, She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Now this whole concept of the, the uh, scepter, the king's scepter, again, is, so you're uh, approaching the king without an invitation, so you're, you're coming in total submission and you're pleading for your life. If he extends the scepter, then you're good to go. If he doesn't, away with you, and the guards and the, the servants will come and take you away and put you to death. When she came the first time, if you'll remember, there was quite the drama surrounding the going into the king. She took th three days and asked the Jews to fast and pray for three days so that she would have favor when she went into the king. She was not convinced that he would extend the golden scepter. We're here at the second time. There's very little buildup. Well, there's no buildup. She just goes in. And, and, it's, and it's so, because two runs into three and so on, I mean, we don't even know that the time's passed. And it seems like it's no big deal. It's just, just another day. Except this is, this, I think, is a lesson in and of itself where if you'll remember... That first time, I mean, she had a lot to deal with. She, she was the one who, she had to get to that point where, okay, if I perish, I perish. So she then went in, um, but she's, she, was, she was already willing to risk her life. That was the first time. So this time, is she willing to risk her life again? Yeah. Does she need to take three days to think on that and ask people to pray with her for that? Apparently not. Because once she has risked her life once, she's willing to do it again. And I think there's a lesson for us in that. I think that we, too, should be willing to risk. And once you, once you figure out, okay, yes, I can do this and the Lord will see me through, and you've gone beyond what you thought you could, then the idea to do that again becomes very easy and very natural to you becomes second nature. She had come to grips with who she was. She had to come to grips with her identity as a Jew, remember who she belonged to, who her people were, the fact that she did love them, and that's where she said, if I perish, I perish. Well, she risked her life because she loved her people. That concept of love, uh, and I mentioned this before, this Mike Cosper quotes a philosopher who said, to love is to die. And then Cosper goes on to explain, it certainly means to embrace death, 
It means to throw yourself in harm's way out of compassion for the world around you and out of, your, and out of the conviction that giving your life away is better than clinging to it. Esther had embraced not only her heritage, but her mortality. She was convinced that it was better to give her life away than to cling to it. How about you? Have you, have you ever struggled with dying to self in some regard? Um, where you've had a hard time putting aside your selfish desires in order to go be a part of something where you're going to serve some greater need, some greater cause, but you do it and you find that you're truly blessed. And then when the time comes around again, there's kind of like automatic and you just go and you do. And you know that you're going to be blessed. Well, this is called progressive servanthood. The idea that you struggled, like, like this is, you, you, you don't need to be embarrassed that you just need to be real, that, yeah, I struggle with my own selfish desires, my own comfort, what I want to do, me sitting in my chair at home and where it's warm, as opposed to going out and sometimes even just going to a meeting. Okay, it's in that struggle that once, and, and this is not like risking your life for the king, but there, the idea that you're getting used to risk this is the Lord working in you to shape and form you so that you're willing to give your life away. Cosper also wrote, he says, our lives are meant to be spent. It's not an investment that's spent in this world. Poured out like Jesus' own. We're meant for meaningful risk, not for mere self-protection. Our lives are meant to be spent in this world, poured out like Jesus' own. We're meant for meaningful risk, not for mere self-protection. Esther asks for the king to revoke the decree Haman put into place. She does this in such a way that she doesn't implicate the king in his responsibility from this decree. She lays it all on Haman. And the king explains that the king, once he signs that decree, he can't re just revoke it. It's just not an option. And so he's kind of clueless as to how to satisfy all parties. He had essentially given Haman a blank check to do what he wanted to do. And now he's essentially giving Esther slash Mordecai a blank check to do whatever they want to do, however they want to help the Jews. The edict in verse 11, it says that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Now that wording to me seems a little harsh. However, this is the exact same wording that uh, Haman had used in his decree as he wrote it in the initial one. So there, the, this, this new decree is going to give the Jews the ability to defend themselves with the same language that was in the original decree. 
the account of what happens, uh, the, it, where it continues on, that's where we just had to read forever, the account of what happened and the report of how many were killed and so on, it talks about how many men were killed. So apparently, they didn't really uh, have to kill women and children. However, that was in this decree. And it says time and time again, I think it are three times, it talks about how they did not uh, take any of the plunder, which they had the right to, but they defended themselves. And the Lord gave them, the enemies, over to them. So there was the reversal of the material goods, that which was so important to Haman. And then there was the reversal of the curse, that which got to what his desires were. He's the one who came up with the idea of the curse because he hated, if you'll remember, it's because he hated Mordecai, but to, to take care of Mordecai wasn't enough. Had to, he wanted to kill all the Jews. So, that's, so we've gotten what Haman loved in his possessions what he desired, the curse, and is reversed, and now that which was bestowed upon him, which was honor, which he loved, he craved honor. So now there's this reversal of honor. So in verse 15, it says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. So this golden crown, the robe of fine linen and purple, blue and white, those are royal collars. Mordecai is receiving praise and adoration. He's receiving position and honor, that which Haman spent his life trying to achieve, that which Haman craved, now is given to Mordecai. Haman's quest ate him alive. Mordecai has been portrayed as someone who was humble, or in this process of this book, got humbled. He first was willing to sacrifice his position as he made known that he was a Jew. But then the last time we talked about Mordecai's clothes, he was dressed in sackcloth and ashes as he was mourning what was going to happen to the Jews when that first decree came out. Here, Mordecai has traded his grave clothes uh, for robes of royalty. And everyone is praising, and, and, uh, pra praising him for saving the Jews. There's, there, there can be a whole lesson in the trading of the grave clothes for the robes of royalty. And let me just say that we have traded, if you are in Christ, you have traded your grave clothes for robes of royalty. You are robed in the righteousness of Christ. In the book of Isaiah, it talks about how you will be robed in white. This is that white, the white robes of Christ's righteousness. You have traded your grave clothes for robes of royalty. Esther and Mordecai had hidden their Jewish heritage, if you'll remember, to us in order to assimilate and be successful in Persia. They were afraid that it would cost them honor and reputation. They didn't, want to, they didn't want everybody to know that they were a Jew. But now in verse 17, look what another reversal. It says, and many 
from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. So now you have all kinds of people wanting to declare that they are Jews. The reversal of honor goes along with that. The waves of this reversal continue. So then in, that was 8.17. Now, now I'm skipping all the way to 9.17. And it says this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day they rested and made the, that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in, in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. That date will be remembered as a great and glorious day when the Lord gave our enemies over to us and they were not able to stand against us. For us, in our world, everywhere we look today, we recognize that there's brokenness all around us. We are a broken people living in a broken world. And we don't have to be a student of theology to know this. If you exist, you know that we are a broken people in the midst of a broken world. We might, because we know things are not right, and, and maybe that's why contentment is so elusive. We always want something. We know that there's, there's, there's a, an embedded discontentment in us because there's something that we're looking for to satisfy this thing, make it right, affix it. But we can't seem to find it. We, unfortunately, don't always experience this great reversal in our own lives, in our misfortunes, in our repercussions of our sin and the repercussions of other people's sin against us, the way other people can hurt us and break us and add to our brokenness. We don't necessarily have that kind of a reversal where we're freed from those things. We don't have necessarily a great reversal, and some, and some do. Some, some have great reversals from their misfortunes. But a lot of times we do not. We don't have a great reversal from the actual misfortunes of our lives. We don't have a great reversal sometimes from the cancer diagnosis, from our car wrecks, from our health issues, from our divorces from our losses of loved ones. Now, we may cling to this story of God's great reversal of saving his people from their enemies, and we can expect God to reverse our situation, swoop in and rescue us. But our faith may get shaken when that does not happen. when God does not rescue us like he did them, when he doesn't give our enemies over to us, but our enemies continue to persecute us. Where, we, where is God in these things? What, how is it that he has not reversed this? Am I not faithful enough? Did I not pray enough? Am I suffering in these things because of my sin? Do I believe? Yes, I believe. But what about these things? Well, there's that 
one truth is that if you are in Christ, it is Jesus who took your punishment at the cross. It would be unfair and it would not be righteous of a sovereign God who is fully righteous to punish Jesus and punish you for your sins. To have a wrong view of what, our, of what God is going to do could shake our faith if we're clinging to this story for those kinds of deliverances and it doesn't happen. I don't want to have our, our faith be shaken. I want it to be strengthened. So our God is a God who is with us. Is what we, it's what we learn. It's what we say. It's what he says. He says Emmanuel. That means God with us. So where is God in the midst of our suffering? In the midst of our despair. In the quiet desperation of our own lives. Where is God in those times? Our God is with us. He is on the deathbed. He is in the midst of your suffering through your physical ailments, through your losses. You see, we don't doubt that God exists because he didn't swoop in and save me in the way I want saved. And, and, you, and you know, I'm, I love comfort. So when I am being persecuted, if I'm, being, if I'm suffering, I want out. But God has purposes in these things. It's in that pain that you're feeling that makes you cling closer to him. He draws you because you have a need. If you'll remember with Mordecai, Mordecai was doing well. In Parkersburg, we would not go to evangelize the Mordecai. We in Parkersburg want to go down under the bridge if we're going to evangelize. But if you're able to actually produce we don't need to evangelize you. Or if you'll remember the story, it was true for Mordecai, it was true for Esther, that as they were building their identity apart from being God's chosen people, they were lacking. And it was in their brokenness that they were able to admit who they were. It's in the midst of our pain which God uses to bring us close. So we thank him, actually, for our suffering. And we cling to him. It was in God's hidden providence, which ultimately becomes unhidden, that led to the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, who conquered our greatest enemy, which is sin. And then by his spirit, which he gives us, then he enables us to continue the battle of putting to death the world, the flesh, and the devil.
it is his spirit that enables us to step out of our comfort, step out into risk, and be willing to lose our lives as we are spent to love and serve others. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.